This is the Future of the Future show. I am your host, Mateo Berbejillo. Sarah Seaborn, thank you so much for being here. Hello, so glad to be here, Mateo. Really excited to talk with you today. Thank you for having me. Very much welcome. Today, Sarah, we're going to be talking about compassionate layoffs and what it means to be an HR leader, some of its challenges, some of the keys to be very good at it. And we're going to do that by talking about your story, right? And so I want to get started with the basics. What do you do today for a living? So today I have an interesting role. So I am still the head of people at Blue Ocean AI, head of people and culture, but I am on a fractional basis. And I actually just spun up a new company called Cascade People Partners, providing fractional HR and head of people uh, services to anywhere from early stage startups, seed, series A, B, to later stage, series D, et cetera. So really excited to be that person that's embedded in the team and be able to help create the foundation and drive that HR strategy for where the company is in their phase of business. Very nice, Sarah. And if somebody wants to reach out for your new role, uh, should they go about it through your LinkedIn profile, your website? What will be the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. So as it's an early business, I'm still building everything out, but you can find my contact info on the Cascade People Partners LinkedIn site. You can also reach me at Sarah at Cascade People, but I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So send me a message. Would love to talk. I know these days there are all different types of initiatives and projects that need help and just advising and consulting. So really excited to talk to people. Super exciting, and congratulations again for launching your new business. Um, Sarah, how did you get to where you are today? And when did you start working on human resources? Great question. Well, it's, it's a funny story. I went to college for marketing and knew I wanted to be in business. But I think many of us who are in HR and people ops Kind of happened to end up in this, and I certainly did. I I ended up in a job outside of college where I didn't necessarily think that's what I wanted to do, but I ended up getting recruited to be a recruiter for Modus, which is a, a pretty large global boutique IT staffing firm, and that's really where I, I got my toes wet and uh, started recruiting for all kinds of big corporations um, back I won't age myself, but a long time ago and ended up recruiting for a long time and then really loved the internal HRBP work and joined my first startup, uh, Blue Kai, who then was acquired by Oracle. And then I ended up in the head of people role and I've been a head of people for basically the last seven years on and off um, and was an HRBP manager for a uh, multinational organization in about 50 different countries. Um, so it was one of those where I really loved the people, internal people, HR business partnership, and really love building people teams and building world-class organizations that truly care about their employees. What does it mean to be a people leader? Great question. So, you know, we've gone through HR seems to be, you know, the traditional classic 
human resources, a lot of times we think, oh, those are the police. We're scared of them. And, you know, the role really has evolved to be more strategic. Actually, joining Blue Ocean, uh, the latest firm that I was the head of people and culture for and currently am on a fractional basis, one of the reasons I joined was, A, the founders are incredible, and B, they're backed by Insight Partners, who is an amazing VC firm that provides a ton of resources to their portfolio, all 600 companies. Um, and so to be a people leader there, it truly means being a proactive strategic partner to the founders and the executive team. So it's no longer, you know, have have HR plan the party and do payroll. There's so much, you know, and the true employee experience, how people feel coming in the door and when they leave. It's just as important to really reflect your employer brand when they're applying for jobs all the way through leaving. And I really think about, you know, when we get into the layoff piece, it's so important to handle this with compassion and care. Because hopefully down the road, this person can be a boomerang employee and come back and think about all the knowledge they have. So being a people leader means so much, but it truly is a strategic function. And companies who bring these people leaders in early on, there's data showing that they actually succeed and have better business results, especially when partnered with a DEI lens down the road. I was just hearing you, and I think what you're saying is very interesting and very true. Um, and I was thinking about some of the things, right? You said, you know, people, when they hear human resources, they think, oh, the police is coming, right? Or, you know, HR just planning the party and doing the payroll. Um, and now it's, you know, when you talk about it and you have so much passion about it, you talk about this being a strategic partner and a strategic function where you are looking at the brand of the company and maximizing it, its value overall, right? Do you think there has been an evolution? Uh, do, do, do you, besides your beliefs, do you see that the industry is getting better and that uh, and human resources as a whole has changed a lot over the, the last years? Absolutely. And especially, you know, we have the pandemic that really changed things and, we became you know major majorly strategic partners and managing the variety of issues that popped up i mean there there's a joke within people ops like people ops leaders are not okay we have dealt with a lot and we are actually learning to you know put our oxygen masks on first or to eat first but to take care of ourselves so we can take care of others i think that you know when i first started a long time ago, about 17 years ago, it was more, and of course I was more entry level. It was very order taking. It was this executive wants this thing done. Okay, how do we do this? We'll get it done. Versus taking a look, you know, doing a gap analysis or a needs analysis and figuring out what the organization needs to meet their business objectives. And so it's truly about, you know, seeing the ROI, being able to state the ROI, be data-driven, but also have that human aspect. We're not robots, and we need to make strategic and proactive decisions. We need to use data, but we also need to you know, drive the legacy of the company. What does this company, what do, what do these leaders want to be when they're remembered down the road? I really ask that question to every single leader that I work with. What do you want your legacy to be? 
And it really ties back to culture. And I know we'll get into that more, but it really helps them drive the culture and what initiatives we need to do to drive home being that best in class employer. I once read um, Satya, I think it was Satya Nadella. He was saying that the C in the CEO stands really for culture, right? And the CEO is really a curator of the culture of a company. Um, and I hear you talking and it seems like my next question is actually, how do you build the culture, right? And into that, how much does, you know, leadership play a role and how much do you realize that you're going to be successful or not when you get into an engagement just by asking the questions you were referencing? You talk to leaders and you say, you know, what do you want to be the legacy? Is there a wrong answer to that where you go like, maybe I cannot have an impact here? Yeah, yeah. If every letter, if every leader was like Satya Nadella, I probably wouldn't have a job. <laughs> or any leader needs a good partner. No, it's, you know, culture is this term that gets used frequently. The interpretation is different, and it might be a little different from company A to B. But the people who actually have to drive culture to establish culture and to drive it are the C-suite executives. It's the founders of the startup. It's the senior leadership team. It's really every single person in the company and how we behave, how we talk, how we interact, um, the casualness or formalness of our communication, et cetera. And it is so, there are pieces of it that are intangible and invaluable. And once you start giving up on your culture, major issues start to arise. I think that, you know, when I look at leaders and we talk about, hey, we need our culture to change. What does that mean? You know, is it is it a piece of culture that isn't so great that we need to get rid of? Is it actually behaviors? And so really being able to dig down and identify that. Now, to answer your question about if, uh, if I say, hey, what do you want your legacy to be? And they say, they give an answer that doesn't align with my personal you know, ethics. That's when I might need to stay, take a step back. And it's happened in my past. I mean, part of interviewing for a job as a people leader, whether it be a fractional role, a full-time role, contract consultant, it is critical that the leaders and this person or these people are really aligned and their values. And so the company values, their personal values, morals and ethics in order to be able to drive the cultural agenda and to actually live it. I mean, they have to live and breathe it. We all do. And that's something once that starts going away, or maybe you have a new executive that comes in and behaves completely differently. They're not aligned on their values. They're not aligned culturally. That's a problem, and that's where, you know, really great interview practices come into play. And then, moreover, really great assimilation practices. So you onboard the executive, and then you assimilate into the team, and and we all hold hands and agree, this is how we act here. And when we're not behaving in those values and we're not driving the culture, especially up here at the very top and leaders, they have to be able to be confident and the HR or people ops leader has to be trusted enough to call that out. And it's not just the people leader that has the responsibility for calling it out. It's all of us. It's checks and balances and holding oneself accountable. Do you remember any particular place where you felt and you could, 
you know, see and touch that culture, right? Like you will, you know, this is, this is an example of what I mean with great culture. This is how we live through our work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. And I would say my, I won't play favorites, but a really great example of a really great culture. And to this day, I still think it was the most tangible culture I worked with that was very positive was that Blue Kai. And they were series and they're, they're now Oracle. They're part of the Oracle data cloud or they are the Oracle data cloud. Um, and they our culture. When I joined, it was palpable. You could feel it. You could hear it. You could see it. Um, and we invested so much in culture. We made sure that we were planning initiatives, learning and development to make sure that everybody was on the same page culturally. And if somebody was out of line culturally, they would be called out. And there were times where, unfortunately, you know, somebody wasn't a fit. Now, you know, in a global company, you have to be really careful during the interview process, especially during these early stage startups. As we know, every hire makes a huge impact. So you have one bad apple, if you will, or one person who is misaligned with the culture. It can really bring the whole place down for a while, uh, morale wise. And so I really think, you know, the tangibleness of, you know, DEI has to be the backbone. It truly has to be an equitable organization where you're not seeing, you know, favorites played or any type of harassment or issues there, which is another issue. But making sure that you can see, touch, hear, think about all the senses and associating that with culture. And again, the CEO of this company, um, Omar Talcal, I think he's an amazing human being, was the he was the backbone of it. And he said to our HR team, you know, I want you to drive this. I want you to preserve our culture. I want you to further it and evolve it. And I want you to tell me if there are things that aren't working that aren't aligning with our cultural norms and values. You, you touched uh, a very important point there in terms of, you know, whoever, whoever you recruit, it's going to have an impact, especially on, on growing small companies that are growing, right? So how do you recruit people? How do you find the best candidates and how do you identify that culture fit you were talking about? Yeah. So this can get sticky. I think that for many years, I think in general, I would say, at least in the tech industry, we've evolved from this a bit. It still very much happens on a daily basis, but making sure we're interviewing with really strong, compliant interview practices, um, that we are speaking back to our norms, our values, to our mission, um, and that we have true DEI practices going into this because what I always get, and I've had this conversation more times than I can count, hey, let's just refer all of our friends. Let's refer people we've worked with. We love that. And we want to make sure that we have a diverse um, interview slate. So making sure that we're giving opportunities to those who may have been underserved or systemically may not have been in your network. And so there's so many different recruiting partners. Um, I think uh, Black Women in Tech is one. I've partnered with 
um, a multitude of different companies in these areas that can really help. Um, but it's really making sure, you know, your job descriptions have bias. So reviewing those, making sure that we're not just catering to a cisgendered white male because there's words in there. Um, I laugh all the time. We, you know, I have a group of fractional people, people that I connect with. And sometimes I'll look at a job description. And it's just like, wow, they really need someone like us to come in and help them. And it's really about offering that opportunity. So recruiting and talent acquisition is such a large, large discipline. And when I think about early stages, it's important to have that recruiting leader that's focused on this because I mean, people leadership is very broad. We have people leadership for managers day to day. We have the HR, people ops, people leaders. And it's a very, there are six or seven pillars and each one is a discipline. And when you think about all the tasks that sit under there, you know, we're expected to be the immigration expert, the employment law expert, the cultural expert, the talent acquisition expert, the coaching expert, the learning and development expert. Obviously, there are many people who are specialized. And so when I think about recruiting it's really smart to early stage to bring in a talent acquisition leader, even on a fractional or consultant ba consulting basis, so they can set your framework. Because going back to culture, the experience of the potential candidate, even if they're not selected, they need to have that positive experience. And it needs to be a similar experience for every person who does a virtual interview, an in-person interview. Um, and they walk out feeling like, hey, they really cared about me. And even if they were a no, that, you know, potentially they'll refer people down the road or maybe they'll be a fit. So, oh, man, recruiting is such it's near and dear to my heart. Um, and it is so much of an art and a science. How do you feel or what do you think about headhunting, right, versus the general ad that is out there? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important from a talent acquisition perspective to always be proactively headhunting and looking and creating opportunities if you're seeing people in your network, if you're attending events, like, hey, we don't have a role right now, but let's talk and let's start building this relationship. So that's the consultative piece. And I also think with talent acquisition, we're really going away from reactive recruiting to proactive talent advisory. And so having this, you know, pool of candidates ready to go, um, obviously being truthful, nobody likes to be strung along if there's not actually a job. But, hey, let's talk. Let's network. I would like you to meet this other person in the company because I see a need down the road and you potentially could be a fit. So I think that's really important. Um, and then, of course, you know, having the reactive and, and pro job postings out there, you know, something that we're seeing a lot of are, you know, what some people call ghost postings. Um, and I look at them, I think if they're honest and transparent that while we don't have a role or maybe it's just a general posting, we would love for you to join our database in case we do. That's also a smart way to build relationships um, but again, in the early stages, it's hard to do all of these things if you're one person. So again, if you can invest, and this is directly to founders and executives, um, if you can invest in a really great talent acquisition person early on, they can help 
remove bias from your interview, set up your interview processes, set up an awesome ATS that's actually going to use AI to help, you know, dig through your resumes and highlight ones that you may not be seeing. There's a lot of work to be done in that area. And I think a lot of people are seeing this right now with the ratio of applicant to interview. That's a, that's a whole other podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed. Um, so we're talking about one side of the spectrum of the lifetime of, uh, of someone in a company, an employee in a company, right? Um, there comes a time where maybe, maybe layoffs are needed, right? And you do a great job about talking about compassionate layoffs, right? Um, what do you mean and why does it matter? Oh, yeah, compassionate layoffs. Um, actually, I had some friends over for dinner last night and I was talking to him about the podcast. He was like, compassionate layoffs? He works for a government organization. He's like, what's that? <laughs> do those exist? Um, and they absolutely do. And it's very hard to attain. I think that, again, we treat, we focus so much on the the candidate funnel at the beginning of the process of attracting, and then we focus on retaining our employees. But what about the end of the employment life cycle? Um, you know, now for, you know, this is quite morbid, but, you know, death doulas exist for end of people, end of life. So thinking about how can we apply that you know, concept to the end of the employee life cycle. And it's really not as, as terminal as I'm making it seem, but approaching it with compassion. So layoffs and, you know, and themselves are not inherently compassionate. It sucks. I'm going to be 100% flat out. It sucks. And I am so sorry if you've gone through it. I personally have gone through it. I mean, we're creating a major barrier and removing a core piece to the Maslow, Maslow hierarchy of needs to well-being. It's going to shake anyone up. Um, it really means that you're handling them with care for the impacted individuals and those remaining, also known, sometimes referred as survivors. So it means that you have a process that's compliant, that it's fair, um, you're considering all aspects. So going through adverse impact analysis and, and ensuring, you know, you're working with an attorney to do the selection. But then let's talk about the actual support. So those things are all basic. Those things are all necessary. But what happens at the end? Sometimes companies get, um, they do outplacement services, which are a great service offering. So it's kind of outsourced, right? So I think in addition to outplacement services, that the internal HR, and again, I know we're all overtasked and overwork, but I truly think you can make an impact on an employee forever or an ex-employee if you can offer things like, hey, let me help you with your resume. Or maybe I can't do it, but let me make sure this outplacement service does. Hey, let me share your resume with my networks. As HR leaders, we have tons of networks, Slack groups, et cetera. So sharing those, um, you see the LinkedIn posts of people opt in and they're like, hey, unfortunately, here are the layoffs we had. These are wonderful people. Please call them. But then also, um, I recently uh, created a Slack group for those impacted. It was completely separate. It was outside of the company. It was a, a, a 
kind of a personal endeavor. And then the ex-employees were able to communicate and say, hey, here's a really cool new tool that I used. Here's a database of people hiring remotely if they were looking for remote work. Um, or, hey, I just need some support. I'm feeling really down. I've applied for 50 jobs and I've heard back for one. And that happened, sadly. Um, it's So it's the little things and checking up on your people, making sure that they know, you know, definitely off offboarding. They know where all their things are going to be, their benefits. Um, when I think about compassionate layoffs in a third realm, you know, you've got compliance, you've got the added value piece. And then the third realm is really what's the severance package? So let's be honest. We need a severance package. Um, and they, they are anywhere from nothing to a couple weeks paid to a calculator, you know, that's based on tenure or service or or there are other milestones that could be used. But taking care of your people financially taking care of their mental health. So using the EAP, having a counselor on site or virtually available the day of for people to talk to for financial counseling, mental wellness counseling, um, and just being there. You know, oh gosh, there's so many stories about really bad layoffs. But I think one of the biggest things that can create a compassionate layoff is a a CEO communication that is well vetted with their HR people leader. <laughs> <laughs> making sure that it is done in a manner that is altruistic, truthful, lets people know that we're here to help them and how we're going to help them. Um, and making sure, yeah, that you know they know you're available, that just because they're parting ways, we have, there's a two-way communication street, um, you know, whether that's creating an alumni group on LinkedIn or just making sure they have your email, et cetera. There's so many things, and I know I'm missing a ton, so I'd be curious to hear from listeners what other resources you provide. And also, you know, the biggest thing to consider is what's your budget? We don't all have budgets to carry all the things I mentioned, and so some of the things are free. They just take time. And so, you know, doing what you can and just being altruistic and and making sure that these people have someone to talk to. Why does it matter so much, right? For the employees, I think the the the, the benefits you are mentioning are clear. Um, for the CEO listening out there, why is this so important? What happens to their brand? What happens to the company going forward when these things are done the right way? Yeah. Oh, great question. It's so important. So. You could easily do a search and look up bad layoffs, or my favorite is uh, terrible CEO layoff letters. Um, and, and we know the follies that have happened. So when I go back to that question to a CEO or C-level executive, what do you want your legacy to be? Do you want your legacy to be the um, cold-hearted executive that left their people you know, in the snow with no coat? No, I I highly doubt anyone, maybe there are a handful, would want to do that. But, you know, I think that, uh, I think a lot of it is forgot. And I think we just were like, okay, let's get this done and let's move on to this next business objective because our board of directors is on us. Um, so we think about reviews, Glassdoor. At Blue Ocean AI, we track Glassdoor reviews, and that actually impacts the company's brand. And so the the approval rating of the CEO is there. 
I know everyone knows this, but this will immediately impact the approval rating of the CEO if this is not handled well. So if you want your rating to go up and we're thinking about metrics, that's one way to do it. But also just as human beings, let's do this right. Let's do this in a way that takes care of our people and potentially our paths might cross again. I mean, how many times have we reworked with people at different companies? How many times have we you know, wanted to, we were curious about going to a company or we wanted an investor. So as a CEO, you know, don't burn bridges. And I think that's a core piece of it. But when I think about the number one impact, that glass door review and every other review, when we think about blind.com and the open sourceness of information, it's everywhere. And just know if you make a mistake throughout this process, everyone will know it's a tough place to be in. Again, partner very closely with your head of people, your, you know, chief people officer during this process. Where do you think we are today in the tech industry in terms of layoffs? Yeah, so I wish it was, I wish we were much further along. Um, I was looking at some data uh, recently and saw through uh, layoffs.fyi, it looks like, you know, the numbers they're reporting, it has, it's gone down um, this year. And so, you know, we saw about, and this is just one data piece, right? So it was saying 257,000 layoffs last year in the tech industry with tech companies, and these are reported uh, to about 65,000 this year. Um, the number of companies is interesting. It's it's almost like you can see the larger companies started last year because it was about 1,100 companies reported that 257,000, whereas this year is 1,644. So the company, you know, it's about flat, relatively flat, whereas the number of humans that were impacted has changed. Um, I think it was a lot of FOMO that... You know, you think about VCs and they see what their peers are doing and all of a sudden their portfolio companies are needing to or you see the larger companies, your Googles, Microsofts, et cetera, and then it starts a domino effect. Um, I really hope it chills out for 2024. I think a lot of us are tired. I really hope that we've learned our lesson. This is something, you know, overhiring is a disease and it's happened it's a common mistake. And, you know, using real sales forecasts um, versus uh, pie in the sky or uh, aspirational sales forecasts to impact, you know, and influence your workforce planning and, and doing really strong workforce planning can help with that. But I really hope that we see this flatten. I don't think it will go away and layoffs will be a thing for probably our lifetimes. But how can it be tempered? How can we make smarter decisions in advance so that we don't end up with these astronomical numbers that really upset the market? You you worked in global companies, right? And so when you think about other countries or what you've seen in your career, how does the U.S. compare to those other countries in terms of regulations and practices for layoffs? Yeah, so the U.S. is pretty unregulated. Um, 
the one law I can highlight and the only one I think that, and I stand, you know, somebody correct me, please, but is the Warren Act. And it was put into place more for plants and manufacturers. And so if you have more than 100 employees and you're impacting, you know, 60 or more, um, you have to provide, um, or sorry, 50 or more, you have to provide a 60-day notice in advance to impacting these people. And so, but that's the requirement. It's just a, it's a two-month notice versus, hey, in addition, you need to provide severance, you need to provide help. Um, of course, the U.S. government provides some resources. Uh, they're out there. Uh, it's it's bureaucratic. It's very hard to navigate. Um, I feel for those who are out of employment and have to deal with these systems. It's really difficult. Um, and yeah, there's just not a lot of compliance around it. I mean, having no requirement for severance is is a shame, I think. Now, you know, people come to the U.S. because our employment laws are so flexible and it definitely, you know, it favors the employer where most states are at will employment states. And so you sign that on your offer letter. We don't most of us don't call any type of employment permanent. Um, in fact, that is definitely a, a that's definitely something we avoid using. In fact, we, we have offer letters a lot of times instead of employment agreements, whereas in other countries, especially like Germany and France, we have these pretty luck, rock solid employment agreements, contracts with lots of provisions. You know, you have the works council to oversee to make sure that the, emplo the employer is treating the employees fairly. And that can take years, um, especially in France. And so... Um, I hope that the U.S. particularly can, you know, become a little more employee friendly. I know and some employers are probably shaking their fists at me right now, but I think it's the humane thing to do. Um, and as you know, one thing I wanted to mention with AI, et cetera, you know, of course, is AI taking our jobs. I, you know, AI is early. We are going to leverage AI, and I think it's, you know, we all need to upskill, reskill, and focus on that. And we're going to see some layoffs because of it. Um, and so then how do we protect our people from these? Do we provide, you know, larger scale upskilling opportunities? Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not a... Um, you know, law expert with regard to, you know, U.S. employment law. I've been doing it for a long time, but I'm still not an attorney, but it certainly has a lot of room for improvement. I've seen a lot of really sad situations where employees were treated very poorly through a layoff, and we can do better. Do you, do you ever get tired of leading people? Oh, I love this question. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Of course I do. <laughs> it's, I would say the pandemic, it was at first, this sounds like, I mean, it sound terrible for saying this, but it was invigorating because it was like, whoa, we have this unprecedented event. Mind you, I feel terrible. And for all of those impacted, you know, people dying and getting sick, it was awful. But on the um, you know, compliance and legal side, it was fascinating because 
it was unprecedented. We've never been through this. So we had act quickly. It was for all of us adrenaline junkies. We were, we kicked into gear right away. This is what we've been preparing for our whole lives. And so getting out there and responding, it was a lot of reactivity. Um, I think that now things have flattened out. Now we're seeing this really unique return to office situation where the argument of remote versus in-person versus hybrid will keep going and going. Um, and that's we're still navigating that. Um, but it, it was fascinating seeing, you know, how we all responded so quickly to a situation that changed quite literally overnight. Um, so what was exhausting about that was the mental wellness side. HR and people leaders, we took a lot of the mental health challenges directly where, you know, I mean, and this is internationally speaking, where, you know, this is a therapist job or a, a psychologist, a, a somebody with a PhD who specializes in this. And so a lot of us were caught. I mean, it was traumatic. It was people were dealing with awful, awful things, and they still will be, and we'll have to work through that. But I think it really did highlight the need for better mental wellness programs in the workplace. And I think we're seeing a response to that now. But it can get exhausting. What's really exhausting is the repetitive mistakes. And so you can go to a founder as a people leader and say, hey, founder, this thing happened at company X because we did or did not do Y. My recommendation is that we do not do this thing because I can almost guarantee that this other thing will happen. Oh, gotcha. We hear you. And then they do the thing and then the thing happens. <laughs> and I think a lot of us, when I can speak for myself, you know, sometimes we get tired of saying, I told you so. We don't want to be like that. <laughs> but it's um, it's about creating that trust and that partnership with the leaders. It's about the founders and C CEOs trusting their people leaders. Um, a lot of us have been doing this for a long time, and these are golden, golden nuggets of information that you can't recreate. And as my mom always said, hindsight's twenty twenty. So let's take that vision and apply it to avoiding the mistakes in the future. I have two questions that I think are related now. Um, what drives you today or or... You know, it's Sunday and you think about the week ahead, what gets you motivated? And very tied to that, I'm going to turn the questions you ask to leaders, I'm going to turn it around. What do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, I, I, a lot of things. I mean, I really hope I'm remembered for changing the landscape, for progressing um, and progressing in a sustainable, resourceful way. You know, it's a spectrum, progressivism. And when we think about how work was in the 50s, we think about how it progressed in the 90s. And then we think about, you know, the 2000s. And my goodness, even seven years ago, it was so different. I think about the vast changes that have happened since then. Um, I would like to be remembered for changing it, for ushering in the next level of the future of work, because we're here. So much of what we were talking about two years ago is here. So ushering in this next level. Um, and then 
continuing to evolve the strategic function of the people leader. Again, it's we want to help and we want to avoid making the mistakes that we have in the past. And a lot of times we do have foresight to see potential issues in the future. And so being that strategic partner, continuing to evolve it um, and also remembering you know, I think DEI has sadly had so much budget reduced widespread over these past couple of years. Um, and thinking about the traction that we're losing because we're not focusing on it. So how can we as people leaders continue to, you know, push these initiatives and build them into day to day so that we don't lose the progression that we've had? Um yeah, I think so much. I just I I hope that people think back and think, you know, Sarah was a really great partner. She made really smart recommendations and she changed the landscape in a way that was sustainable. Do you I'm just wondering out loud, there's a lot of talk about the four days week. Uh we have AI, we have so many things going on. When you think about the next the changes that are coming in in the next 10 years, do you think there will be a widespread four days week? Is that a Europe thing? Is that a, something that might happen in the U.S.? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing it in, in countries like Germany and other European um, countries. I I was just at a conference um, and attended a session on a people leader who implemented the four-day work week, and she gave us a lot of her mistakes that they they learned from and they iterated on and the many changes. Um, and it's really interesting. I mean, as somebody who loves to you know work hard and play hard, I would love to see a four-day work week. Um, you know, do I think it's the best thing for every company? No, there are a lot of inequities when you think about hourly employees versus salary employees versus uh, shift employees versus, you know, you've got pager duty and you have, you know, those who have to be online monitoring um, systems, things like that. But I, I think we'll see more of that. But really where I think we're going to see the change is not a perfect four-day work week, but perhaps modified hours. And perhaps maybe we're seeing split days to help, you know, provide for maybe it's working parents or maybe it's, um, you know, accommodations, et cetera. And so I, I would love to see, I would love to see progression out of, you know, butts in seats, time on the keyboard, and really be able to focus on productivity and progression. And are we meeting our goals? You know, focus on that. If the four-day work week is a result of that, awesome. I think it's been proven that a lot of people are burned out and a lot of priorities, we all relooked like, what is this life? What are we here for? What are we doing? How are we making an, an impact? And is working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, is that changing the world? Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but I think we've all done a lot of really deep thinking and I think we'll see some changes. Will it be a four day work week? For some, it will be. Maybe it will look like summer Fridays or Fridays are off. Maybe it will look like no meeting Wednesdays, which we've done at Blue Ocean. And it was 
awesome. It was so nice to be able to have a day to just focus on getting work done. Um, not that you can contact people, but that was a really fun one to pilot and experiment with. No meeting Wednesdays. I, I think I like that one. I'm going to think about that one. It, uh, wow, we can talk more about it. I, I, I like the no meeting blocks of time. I think it really helps to provide some creativity and innovation space. And, you know, GSD gets stuff done. Yes, yes, very much. Related to this, uh, when you're not working, what do you do? What do you like doing? Yeah, so right now skiing. I live in Bend, Oregon, and the U.S. Um, I'm in Central Oregon, and and we're I, we have a volcano we ski on called Mount Bachelor, and um, they just opened and have my first day. It was very rainy, unfortunately, last weekend, and so hoping for more snow and more skiing. And um, but I also love the sun and the beach and so planning a trip hopefully and you know around spring break for my kids and go to a beach somewhere <laughs> very very nice both options um sarah this has been amazing thank you so much for sharing your story for sharing your thoughts i learned so much uh for everyone listening it's it's very very clear the value that you get with someone like sarah a fractional HR people leader that can help you do so much at the onset of your company or even later in whatever stage you are, right? Um, and if you are recruiting people, leading people, doing whatever with people, I think this is a great episode to listen to. So thank you, Sarah, so much. And I hope we can do this again sometime. Thanks, Mateo. I would love to. Thanks again for, for having me and this rich conversation. Really look forward to connecting again soon. Take care.